Hi guys and welcome back to Docs Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical days, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii. We hope Docs Talk Story can inspire and help medical students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Lee Buakanseho Lum. She completed her medical school and residency training at Jabsum in Family Medicine. She now serves as a professor of family medicine and community health, the associate dean for academic affairs, and the designated institutional officer and director of graduate medical education here at Jabsum. Hi, Dr. Buakanseho Lum. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, so just to start off um, our conversation, can you tell me a little bit about your journey? Um, like, how did you get to where you are today, and why did you decide to go into family medicine? Great. So I was one of the kids that kind of knew I wanted to be a doctor from the time I was 12. Uh, did biology in college and, you know, pre-med, the whole thing. I didn't take any gap years or, or anything. Um, and I grew up in Waihua, which is in the central, central Oahu. And even though, you know, my family uh, is a middle, middle class family and, you know, comes from a family of educators, I definitely grew up seeing a lot of disparities mm-hmm. and some of my classmates were not as fortunate as I was. And Waihua as a community was starting to decline um, when there were big changes in the military and other kinds of things. And so um, when I was away for college, I, you know, made the conscious decision to come back home for medical school because I knew that ultimately I wanted to practice in Hawaii Mm -hmm. uh, and ideally in my community and give back somehow. So that's what brought me back here for medical school. And then uh, when I uh, started medical school, I wasn't sure, you know, exactly. Uh, My great-granduncle was a general practitioner out in Mm -hmm. Waihua. He essentially delivered a third of the people in in Waihua during his prime. Um, But there was actually no Department of Family Medicine when I started medical school. And so I uh, learned, you know, learned about it. And at first I thought I would just do internal medicine um, because I liked that complexity. Uh, But then I did a summer with pediatrics during between my first and second year in a community health center. Mm. So then I really saw the value that preventative care could have and the influence that you could really have, not just taking care of running noses, but actually, in fact, helping to shape, you know, the family um, and and guide the child. So so with that, I was like, hmm, I loved everything in my third year uh, and including surgery and OB. But I had worked for an OB uh, during college and I saw the lifestyle. And at at, at that time, Uh their private practice was the model. And so I couldn't see myself being on call 24 seven for 30 years and, you know, missing every Christmas dinner. It's different now because of the way that practice has changed, but back then it was pretty much private practice. Um, and then with surgery, as much as I love surgery and being, you know, hands-on, whatnot, I just didn't think that I personally could deal with call every other night. Mm-hmm. Again, this is well before duty hour restrictions, um, and the, you know, the life of a of an attending surgeon means you're actually on call at multiple hospitals. And I just thought, well, you know, as a woman in medicine, at some point maybe I want to have right, a family, right. and that would be really hard. Uh-huh. Um, and so then I said, well, it combines a lot of that. And family medicine, you know, was really that. And so um, by the time I was a fourth year medical student, we did have a Department of Family Medicine 
and the residency clinic had just opened a few months before that so I got to actually you know work with like my future faculty and mm-hmm. really future colleagues uh, in our department's family medicine clinic out in Mililani and then did some rotations on the mainland and at a community health center and really got a, an idea of what family medicine could do um, and then I decided to stay home for residency and I was in the first residency class oh, wow. um, and uh, so, you know, lots of kind of build it and then go mm-hmm. to the rotation and build it and go to that rotation. But it was a very exciting time. And um, again, I, our residency was actually in Waihua Hospital, which is a hospital that I was born at and where my you know, oh, great nice. uncle had um, privileges and whatnot. So it was just a good neat to see, you know, on the first day of orientation, uh, one of the, the ladies who worked at the gift shop was actually my mother's labor and delivery nurse. Oh. So she went around and wow. she's like, oh, you know, I was the first person, blah, blah, blah. And I still have your mother's nail marks in front of me because you came out backwards. You know, it just it was just oh, so really funny. country, really, really nice feeling. So, um, and then when I was in residency, um, again, I knew I wanted to try to make a bigger impact on the community, mm-hmm. um, and and so train to me training future physicians to be great physicians, no matter what specialty, mm-hmm. but also training future family physicians. I thought I could make a bigger impact than if I was just uh, seeing you know patients one on one in my office. So, so then I joined the department and and have held you know almost every position and then. <laughs> was asked to join the dean's office overseeing the residency programs in 2016 and then became the associate dean uh, about a year ago. So, Wow. Yeah. Um, so I just want to go back to um, when you talked about your interest in OB-GYN. Um, and I know that kind of plays a big component in family medicine, at least in comparison to like med-peds or internal medicine. Um, so how much work, like OB-GYN work, can a family medicine um, practitioner do? Okay, that's a great question. I think it depends on where you practice. Um, so certainly, um, family medicine physicians are well-trained in prenatal care. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of models, including here in Hawaii, where there are still practices that do prenatal care mm-hmm. uh, and then work in conjunction with an obstetrician to actually you know, do the delivery um, piece. And, and Hawaii's... Um, kind of overall malpractice climate and other things, unfortunately, hasn't been that favorable mm-hmm. uh, for family medicine OB to, to, to stay in that for a long time. So when I was in training, uh, there were probably about maybe 10 of us that were family medicine and but doing deliveries. Mm. And now uh, on Oahu, there's one, oh, wow. um, Dr. Devilbis at KKV. And then on the in Hawaii Island, there's uh, you know a small small number as well. So mm-hmm. so here in Hawaii, just partly because of the malpractice climate and other kinds of things, um, it hasn't been kind of sustainable, mm-hmm. shall we say? Also, the the reimbursement for OB is really quite bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know everything's bundled and and. Um, uh, you know, there's reasons for that, but it, it actually makes it really hard because if you have to pay very high malpractice, um, which includes for prenatal care, and yet, you know, you're paid really a little bit, then you, it, it's, it's really not possible to mm-hmm. sustain it, especially if you're in private practice. But OBs also, of course, are surgeons with the GYN, right. and so that's where a lot, a lot of the, you know, that comes up. So, but I think the key is even if you go into family medicine, you don't intend to deliver babies, which is what a lot of you know folks do. 
it's because of that holistic approach with the family. Mm. And then we often will see pregnant women. So even if our OB colleagues are taking care of the actual pregnancy, we're still going to see them to help manage their chronic diseases mm. or for, you know, kind of the acute care visits and whatnot. And then importantly, when we see them post-delivery, we're caring for the babies. And because we have that relationship with right. the mom and because we've had good prenatal care training, mm-hmm. we can actually, you know, train to recognize some some challenging issues that could arise. Um, mm. And so I think that a lot of folks that go into family medicine, OB is, is a required part of the training. Mm-hmm. But in fact, certainly in Hawaii, many do not actually do OB as a major part of their mm-hmm. their career. But the training definitely helps us take better care of families. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good to know. Um, so I guess another thing about family medicine training is that it tends to be more like outpatient focused, but I noticed that you've also practiced like inpatient at um, Wahiwa General Hospital and also Kapiolani Medical Center. Um, so how much inpatient training like do you get in um, family medicine residency? Good question. So um, all family medicine programs across the country are accredited by the ACGME or the Accreditation Council mm-hmm. and Graduate Medical Education. And so there's actually a fair amount of inpatient that is required. Um, so contrary to popular belief, yeah. there's actually quite a lot of inpatient oh. that's, that's required. Um, and part of it is that, and whether it's inpatient pediatrics or inpatient internal medicine, um, the reason that it's important to train well in mm-hmm. inpatient is because that plus ER is where you're going to recognize really the sick ones, right? Mm. Who needs to be admitted and, mm. and have that ability to triage. Whereas if you only do your training with predominantly outpatient, it may be a little bit hard because right. you're not going to see the sickest mm. of the sick, you know? So so our training program here um, at UH actually is still fairly heavy inpatient. Um, so we've got the inpatient service now at Polymomi. Um, and, uh, you know, that includes, uh, you know, night float to four weeks of night float and, the, and, and it's, it's spread out and whatnot. Um, but cardiology is actually a mix of inpatient and outpatient. So you get to see both sides. Uh, surgery is also a mix of inpatient and outpatient. Um, and then on the pediatric side, uh, there's pediatric emergency medicine as well as newborn nursery uh, and pediatric wards. And then the last two months are kind of primarily outpatient, so adolescent medicine, behavioral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, yeah, so there's actually a fair amount of, of inpatient. And so as folks wow. are kind of deciding and looking at programs, you know, some programs will exceed more than the minimum. Ours is one of those that exceeds more than the minimum. So we actually have two months of medical ICU at Queens. Mm. Uh, but again, part of it is we're really trying to train folks uh, broadly, and mm-hmm. so that if they are going to practice on the neighbor islands, where a lot of our our, our, mm. our um, graduates do practice, uh, again, they're comfortable. They have right. good, solid inpatient skills, uh, and um, you know can really make those appropriate decisions um, for the patients that you know. Because after a certain time, right, you may not do inpatient um, yourself because there's a hospitalist model. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the primary care physicians, we're still the ones two o'clock in the morning with our long patients and have to make that decision mm-hmm. you know over the phone with them whether we're going to send them to the ER so having a good grounding in inpatient medicine is actually pretty important oh awesome yeah so I guess just going off of kind of the diversity of training you get um, in family medicine 
What are some options for um, fellowships uh, subspecialized um, within family medicine? Great. So um, certainly sports medicine and geriatrics are the most the two most common mm-hmm. uh, fellowships. There are some programs that are combined, meaning family medicine psychiatry or family medicine OB or family medicine ER. Oh. And so with those combined programs, instead of the, so family medicine is three years, but with the combined programs, they're either f- four or five years, mm-hmm. depending on what the specialty is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But those are the most common fellowships for family medicine, yeah. Oh, are, th- are so doing those joint programs are a pretty popular option now? Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot of positions available, mm-hmm. you know, across the country. Um, but for example, so with with the other the other fellowship is actually a high risk OB fellowship, and okay. so so the combined family medicine OB program, say like at UC Davis for example, it's kind of evenly split: two years of family medicine, two years of OB. Uh, but you also have a lot of models, uh, which is where some of my classmates did, is they do their three years of family medicine, but they didn't they do a high risk OB fellowship, which is very much focused on C sections and other oh. things. Um, and so if you want to practice in a rural mm-hmm. area. Uh, or you want to have actual delivery and C-section privileges, you pretty much have to do mm-hmm. an OB fellowship, a high-risk OB fellowship. So. All right. So I, we talked about one of the myths of family medicine being that it's mostly outpatient, and I already learned um, a lot from that one. But what are some other big myths um, about family medicine that you'd like to dispel? Okay. Uh, well, I think we kind of talked about the OB uh, you know, issue again. A lot of folks sometimes when they're trying to have their decision making, you know, they're they're scared away by the by the OB component, mm-hmm. you know. And so, again, I think the training and, and you know the nature of family medicine is evolving as a specialty across the country. Um, there are definitely programs, especially in more rural areas, which are quite heavy, high volume OB, and that's that's because they're training OB family medicine OB providers for the very small town, right? Um, and uh, but you know our OB requirements, especially here, it's really kind of one month of labor and delivery in the first year and one month in the second year. Uh, if you want to do that, there's a variety of other supplemental things that you can do. But it's really um, our requirements are not that much compared to some of the mm. other programs. So I think that's one myth. Um, yeah, we talked about you know the the kind of outpatient only. Um, you know, we actually have a lot of graduates who are hospitalists, um, and and so if you are interested in again having that holistic broad training, so that you can really understand the family dynamics and you know have a good amount of behavioral health counseling and whatnot. Um, but say you do that and you just you love inpatient. Well, that's great because we actually have a fair number of our graduates doing hospitalist work, not only here in Hawaii, but also in the mainland. So, Awesome. Okay, so I think we touched on earlier that you hold a lot of different positions, so I think we'll now just try to talk a little bit about each of those. Um, so first, um, in your work as a clinician um, at the University Health Partners of Hawaii Family Medicine Clinic, um, how often are you there, and what does your practice kind of look like? Okay, so right now, because I'm the associate dean, um, I'm in meetings constantly. Uh. So I had to go down to once a month, uh, and so it's uh, kind of the fourth Wednesday of every month. You know, I have to really stick to a schedule. Um, and so I actually had to turn a lot of my patients over, mm-hmm. my, some of my long-term, like 25-year yeah, yeah. you know, patients, uh, over to some of my other colleagues. Um, 
but I still have a few. So I, um, uh, some of the patients that I still have are uh, folks that might have cancer or mm-hmm. kind of chronic pain and some, you know, really, really very complicated patients. Um, and so uh, those, you know, those tend to be my patient panel right now. Um, but up until about a year ago, I was actually seeing patients two to three times um, mm. a month. So again, which is still very low volume compared to before, um, you know, when I was in the department fully and and the residency director, then, you know, I'd have my my own panel of patients, uh, you know, once a week, and then I'd have uh, precepting, so supervising the, the residents in the clinic, you know, once or twice a week, and then I'd be on the inpatient service, uh, you know, eight or so times a week. So, yeah, so it's just, it's really varied. And I think yeah. that's a nice thing about family medicine. And also the nice thing about um, different practice opportunities mm-hmm. and practice models. So, um, you know, depending on what you're interested in uh, and your emphasis, you really, again, you know, look look for the job. That's part of the negotiating uh, when you're looking for a job. But it's, it's quite possible to, you know, tailor your schedule to what you're, you know, so that you can have time to mm-hmm. explore your other passions. Yeah. So how important or how much value do you see, like, for yourself and making sure you keep that some, at least some clinical experience? Do you find that important? Yeah, for me, it is important. And in part because, um, you know, as the designated institutional, fish, institutional official, DIO, even I can't say that, <laughs> um, but that's so that I oversee all of the residency and fellowship programs, but also as the associate dean, you know, I work regularly uh, with all of the healthcare systems mm-hmm. and, you know, need to kind of stay on top of mm-hmm. EPIC and all of the different legal changes and other things. And so I think if I didn't see patients, it would just be harder for me mm-hmm. to do that. But since I'm I'm there and held to the same, you know, requirements like oh. like everybody else who's practicing, that gives me a good reality test, you know, uh, and, and allows me to stay up to date. So. Nice. That makes sense. <laughs> Plus, if I'm, you know, ever come back to tutoring in PBL or other things, you know, you guys are so smart and oh. you ask all of these really great questions. And, you know, if I didn't do any clinical care, I'd be really out mm. of it. So, um, you know, having smart students like you guys <laughs> it helps keep our brains active. <laughs> all right. So some of the positions you hold for academic um, administration include, like, as you said, the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and also the Designated Institutional Official. Um, and so, yeah, you oversee all the residency and fellowship programs. Um, so I think you touched on it a little bit earlier, but were you always interested kind of in medical education and academic administration? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I come from a family of teachers, and oh. so I loved teaching. In fact, my backup, uh, you know, if medicine didn't work out, was going to be a teacher. Um, so I've always loved that piece, and I find that in a role, in our role as physician, we're all teachers. Mm-hmm. And the better teacher you are of your patients, of your staff, of your colleagues, the more effective a physician you're going to be. So I've always enjoyed teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the academic piece, uh, by the time I was probably in, mostly through my first year of residency, I kind of decided I wanted to do academic medicine, um, or basically not do 100%, you mm-hmm. know, clinical, mm-hmm. uh, because like I mentioned before, I wanted to uh, see how I could make the biggest impact on the community. And so I thought that by teaching and helping guide the training of others that I might be able to make a bigger mm. impact than just seeing, you know, patients uh, in my office. Now, don't get me wrong, 
super important. But right. for me, I was thinking more kind of a public health view mm-hmm. and other things, and so that was important. Um, and then as I became more um, aware and interested in the needs of the Pacific, which really started in my second year of residency, I did a rotation in American Samoa, mm-hmm. um, then it became very clear that if I wanted to do kind of public health or some research or other things like that, that I really did need to go into academic medicine. Mm. So for a student that is also interested in academic medicine, um, what is the pathway, like the training pathway like, and what are some other like opportunities that they can pursue? Yeah, good question. Well, here at Jabson, we're really fortunate, right? Because we've got the medical education mm-hmm. interest group and we've got fantastic mentors here, uh, you know, Dr. Kasuya and many others. And mm-hmm. so I think folks that are interested um, as a student in the teaching aspects, you know, certainly that's a wonderful path to take. And even if you uh, don't do the full certificate program, then I believe there are medical education electives. Mm-hmm. And then as a fourth year, you know, there are opportunities to co-tutor, mm-hmm. uh, which as a, a tutor we find incredibly helpful because the fourth years are so much closer in age to their to their first year peers, um, and 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 have passed their you know, the core clinical rotations and so can really help to mm-hmm. explain kind of the relevance, you know, of whatever they're learning in MD1 and MD2 and MD3 mm-hmm. uh, because you guys have, you know, kind of seen that a little bit yeah. more applicable in your fourth year. So that's so that's kind of in medical school. Um, and then in residency training, you know, as you look for different residency programs, some actually will have an, quite an emphasis on teaching and on academics. Other programs will have more of an emphasis on research. Um, and this is for all all specialties. You know, the the uh, the accrediting body actually requires scholarly activity for every single resident, um, and that can that often means a research project. Mm-hmm. Um, in other places, it could be, you know, certainly the Grand Rounds presentation and other kinds of things. Um, in family medicine, you're actually required, one of those has to be a quality improvement project because the population health and quality mm-hmm. improvement and all of that is just so critical to what family medicine does. Um, and, uh, and so as you go through kind of in your third and a half, and especially the you know beginning of your fourth year, uh, those are important things to look at uh, when you're looking at residency programs. Uh, are, am I in a residency program that supports, you know, not all research has to be at a um, super, you know, highly funded, thinking of, of Duke, you know, for example, <laughs> or, you know, or a place like Stanford. So I guess it depends on your it depends on what your interests are, mm-hmm. um, and there's also so many different types of research, right? And so now, if you want to be um, an MD PhD type or that sort of clinician scientist, so maybe not not fully getting your PhD, but very much, you know, wanting to incorporate um, bench research or lab research, um, then they're definitely, you know, you want to be very um, discriminatory when you're looking at programs um, and, and whatnot, but. Um, but yeah, so so I think that's you know kind of the the path. Um, and some programs now, there's actually an increasing number of residency programs um, where you can actually get an MPH, a master's in public health, mm. at the same time, or maybe it's a master's of science in clinical research, or actually has some offerings like a certificate program. Um, and so that allows you, while you're still a busy resident, you know, to still take classes, um, you know, and it's a little bit of a slower path, obviously, because you're a resident and you're mm-hmm. working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. Um, but, but you can certainly do that. And a lot of our faculty here at JASO have done that because we have a master's in science a clinical research program mm-hmm. here. Um, and so a lot of our faculty and, 
And uh, I don't think we've had any residents do it, just because it's so tough. <laughs> but we've had fellow we have had fellows do it, and faculty do it. So um, uh, and so that that's been really really helpful. So even if you don't get a formal degree, uh, you know, to, to take some of these classes um, just really helps your understanding. And then and then uh, finding a job in a place where some of that work can be supported. Yeah. So first, I'd like to just touch on the fourth year co-tutor. I had a fourth year co-tutor and she was like amazing. Like it was so valuable to have her in PBL. Yeah. So definitely a, a great program there. Um, so you completed a fellowship um, in faculty development mm-hmm. at JABSA. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering, is it mostly like primary care docs who are doing those uh, medical education fellowships or is it, do you see a lot of different types of specialties? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's really anybody, it's it's multiple specialties. Um, and so, so right now, the you know the, the medical education fellowship now it's run by Dr. Casilla and mm-hmm. has been for for many many years, and um, pretty much I think almost every department sends their new faculty to participate in that fellowship because that's why you're joining the faculty, right? Mm-hmm. Is to teach, and we want to make sure that all of our faculty have um, excellent skills in teaching and assessing, and you know really kind of thinking, having that scholarly framework. Um, and so, yeah, it's multiple specialties uh, go, and there's a lot of them, a um, lot of them. And then there's a lot of uh, master's programs, like I said, including some that are mostly online, but you go in person, you know, two to four times a year, USC, Michigan, a lot of those places. Um, and that is really multiple, multiple specialties. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, good to know. Um, so in your position as director of uh, graduate medical education, um, one of your goals is kind of to produce physicians who can productively engage in population health care activities and achieve um, health equity in the populations that we serve. So can you speak to what kind of makes Hawaii's population unique and how students can kind of be proactive about achieving that goal of learning how we can best serve our community? Okay, that's a great question. So, um, you know, obviously Hawaii doesn't have majority, right? We are one of these... Um, majority minority states mm-hmm. and and so our racial and ethnic diversity is is really a gift um, but you know there's a lot of inequities that are hidden within mm-hmm. that I think now you know with COVID yeah. it's become very very apparent yeah. right what those challenges are um, and so but but we know that there's a lot of well, actually, we don't know, and that's why the research is is important. So when you're doing uh, things like all the omics, uh, you know, genomics and mm-hmm. and proteomics and all these things that you probably you guys are probably much better at that than I am. But but the idea is that you know there are um, so yes, much of the health inequities I think are due to uh, race or socioeconomic status and other kinds of things. But there really are probably genetic factors as well for mm-hmm. certain diseases. Um, I think that some of that's been shown and is being studied with like staphylococcus infections, mm-hmm. um, especially in kids, uh, and you know some other things. So, um, and so there's our I think our multiple ethnicities is important. I think that. Um, because of our island geography, there's opportunity to look at differences in care, how care is delivered, mm-hmm. say on a neighbor island versus here, you know, on Oahu. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of disparities anyway, right, between urban and rural. Um, but, you know, being on an island is actually different than a more typical, right. say, rural place mm-hmm. that you can still drive, you know, mm-hmm. three hours to. So I think that makes, um, makes it really unique. And I think, are one of the strengths 
is many of our ethnic communities are so uh, so close. And so that, that true community, that sense of, again, sense of ohana, the duty to the family, that's, that's actually really quite different, you know, mm-hmm. than some other places. And so, uh, so from the kind of the type of stuff that I like to do, which is more community-based participatory research, um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, great community groups out there that uh, you know, are willing to partner with academic institutions and, and you know, health providers uh, if they're brought to the table early, right? And really part of that, mm-hmm. identifying what are some of the challenges and then really being part of the solution. And so there's, there's both kind of formal research and there's a lot of public health evaluation type things that are, um, I think, uh, more accessible to us here. The other thing is that Hawaii is small. And so uh, there are certain things that we can do. Yes, obviously, lots of things to, you know, to navigate. But we can actually make some real population health imp- strides here because we're small mm-hmm. and because of the strength mm-hmm. of our community networks compared to, like, a huge place like California, right, right. you know. So I think those are just a, a, some of the things that make us, um, make us unique here. The other thing, though, I must say is... Um, we are fortunate here in Hawaii that three of our largest health systems use Epic. So we've got Kaiser, Queens, and Hawaii Pacific Health. Mm. And even though you know their Epic builds are just slightly different, the bottom line is it's still Epic. And so from a data, big data point of view, there really is that potential you know, to do true population health. Um, and even if it's not at all three systems, just that Queens alone has a huge network HPH has a huge network, and so by really using the data and looking at health services and how we deliver it, um, what's the role of, say, community outreach workers and others, especially in our some of our um, populations that are harder to reach, right? We can actually do that here. Uh, we can do that here because HMSA also, you know, basically covers 60-70% of the lives here. Mm-hmm. And so like Dr. Chen Wen Sang, who's in our Department of Family Medicine, she's on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and she's this huge health services researcher. But she, you know, and a few people have access to the HMSA databases mm-hmm. and work with them so that we can actually do some really meaningful studies here because we're small mm-hmm. and because our, our big data is actually set up, you know, to do that. So that's definitely an advantage. Not easy, but it's an advantage. <laughs> yeah, so I guess given that Hawaii is so unique and has both its unique challenges um, and benefits, um, in your opinion, do you think it's preferred to stay here for residency um, if the option is there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think so. You know, I, I had to make a really tough decision. Yeah. First, coming home to a brand new, I was in the second problem-based learning class. Mm. And so it was really a very new curriculum. And I was at Stanford and, you know, even back then, Stanford kind of had everything, you know, we had apples because, you know, at Hewlett Packard, I mean, they were, you know, they all went to Stanford, right? And so I was super spoiled. Really. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, back when I came, of course, we were in the biomed building and our library was like four bookshelves and, you know, we didn't have widespread internet and all these things, right? So. Um, so I had to make, uh, you know, a tough decision to come home, but I'm glad I did. And then with residency, again, I also kind of needed to, to decide, you know, what was important. And so um, because I wanted to practice in Hawaii, um, 
a lot of those connections mm-hmm. and figuring out who, who's the specialists and you know what's their what's the care like what's their communication style like mm-hmm. those kinds of things I thought was really really important um, doesn't mean you can't learn those things if you go away for residency and then come back home but if you train here right. you just you're kind of in the system already and so that's definitely helpful all right, so just kind of a side question, um, given your position with residencies and stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on like the step one being pass-fail and how do you think that's going to kind of affect residency requirements and it, how competitive it is? Yeah, you know what, that's a really, really hard-to-answer yeah. question. Um, you, you know, the country and the, the working group that, I mean, they that was like a four- or five-year process, mm-hmm. you know, to decide. I think it's actually a good thing that it's moving to pass-fail um, for a couple of reasons. One is, for all of you folks who got into medical school, you're already kind of the top of the top, right? And medical school itself, even if you're in a pass-fail curriculum, like how ours is for the first few years, is still incredibly stressful, right? And with the USMLE 1 being so high stakes, mm-hmm. Um, then sometimes you forget, like there's much more to medicine than USMLE, you know? Um, And so what we were finding happening across the country, including here, was that folks were just not paying attention to MD7, you know, Um, because they were so worried worried about step one. Well, MD7 is life cycle, PEDS, you know, OB, geriatrics. It's also the last clerkship or the last uh, course before you head into clerkship, Right. right? And so there was a short time, this was a while ago, where we really were very concerned because people, the students just weren't paying attention. And then they really struggled, you know, on the clerkships because they didn't get the big picture. They mm-hmm. forgot how to make those connections because their heads were just so much, you know, on the test, on the mm-hmm. test. So, and this is nationwide. So not just here, this is nationwide. So I think for that reason, it's great. And then we know that, you know, again, anyway, student well-being super important. Right, and trying to minimize stress where we can. Okay, so what happens though now for step mm-hmm. two, right? And so is step two going to be super high stakes? Um, step two is already kind of high stakes, <laughs> uh, honestly, um, because that's the clinical, right? right it's going right. to it's going to have more clinical, and so all of us already in family medicine we tend to pay more attention to the step two scores. You know, some other specialties tend to pay more attention to the step one scores, but basically are you going to be a good clinician, right? In addition to, are you going to be a good team player? Are you going to be a problem solver? Are you going to be proactive? All those things that the tests can't measure. Right, right. Right, so to me, step two is already high stakes, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily kill yourself studying for it in the same way that step one is Mm -hmm. because your preparation for step two is doing well in your clinical rotations. Obviously, there are studying. You still use the books. You have to, you know, it's a physical endurance test. Um, you got to do practice tests, but not in the same way uh, that step one is. So, so from the residency program perspective, I think most of us welcome it, actually. But there's also, you know, definitely some biases, right? If you're only going to use test mm-hmm. as your main criteria. And so a lot of us are really concerned about that. Um, you know, some of our folks that... Uh, grow up to be, say, the best clinicians and providers for certain communities, you know, they may not have the best test-taking abilities, Mm -hmm. right? 
And we've shown over, not we, but you know, over and over again, there's lots of data mm -hmm. that shows just how well you do on a test really doesn't have any correlation, right, to how good a physician you're mm -hmm. gonna be. Mm -hmm. And so nationwide, there's this huge effort to really try to find that balance. And that effort includes working with the state medical boards, you know, the whole Federation of State Medical Boards, uh, AMA and many others. So it's not just the academic community, it's actually the everybody who has to do with licensure and credentialing. So it's part of this really big national effort. Nice to hear your opinion on that. Um, so we're just gonna kind of shift into um, your last major, I guess, involvement being like public health um, and health policy. Um, so just in reading a little bit of your bio, a lot of your scholarly activities are focused on reducing those health disparities um, in Hawaii um, and in the U.S. affiliated Pacific Island jurisdictions, um, specifically in regards to preventing and screening for cervical cancer. Um, so what is your role in public health and health policy? Okay, good question. So. Um, so I started working with Dr. Palafox uh, and the USAPI. Um, really, well, my first introduction was actually when I was a resident. Oh, okay. um, but then certainly when I joined the faculty, and, but the first time I actually visited um, from that cancer prevention perspective was really in 2002. Okay. Um, and so um, a lot of, you know, in a way that as physicians we have to kind of translate and communicate to our patients in ways that they understand. A lot of that work in the Pacific, especially back then, was trying to work with um, not only public health officials, but also community leaders to actually understand what kind of public health strategic planning was. You know, the Centers for Disease Control and Epidemiology is its own foreign language. And if you're um, brought up in, a, it's, and it's hard for us to understand, but we're kind of raised in the American system, right, in the Western system. Mm -hmm. But in some of the jurisdictions, that structure, whatnot, was really quite foreign, and it was definitely a foreign language. And some of their health decision structures um, were, were also different than what we're used to in the United States. Uh, yet, as part of the USAPI, it's kind of like, well, CDC says you do this, and so everybody has to do this. It was kind of a one-size-fit-all, mm -hmm. which really wasn't appropriate at all, given the resource level. And so a lot of the early work was to help uh, really um, translate and help guide the development of these comprehensive cancer control programs. Mm -hmm. And so working with, again, physicians and nurses and public health, building these coalitions, which include businesses and churches and traditional leaders, uh, get them to kind of understand what does a comprehensive plan look like um, as opposed to just reacting, right? Because that's how we all are by nature. We're just going to react, we're going to put out these fires. Mm -hmm. But to really address things long term, mm -hmm. you have to plan it and try to address every stage. So what does prevention look like? What does screening look like? What does treatment, what does end of care look like mm -hmm. in my context? So, so that's what a lot of that initial work was. And then um, to do any sort of program improvement, you need data, right? And so whether it's a health um, quality improvement project in diabetes in your office, or if it's trying to have a cancer program, you actually need data. Mm -hmm. And so when we started, there were actually no cancer registries in the U.S. Pacific. And so we got some funding from the CDC to do an assessment, a regional assessment, to see if it was possible to have one registry system, what it would cost, what the resources are, training, everything. And so we actually have a registry in each jurisdiction. Um, but as a region, it comes together, and so we at UH are the administrative 
piece of that and we provide technical training and assistance and whatnot. Um, but each jurisdiction, because they're independent countries, three of them are independent countries, and the other three are U.S. territories, like territories, so they needed their own data, mm -hmm. right? And so there was a lot of negotiation, as you might imagine. Yeah. And really with the U.S. API, it's important to speak with one voice, recognizing there's a lot of differences between the jurisdictions. But when you have such small populations, mm -hmm. it's important to be able to kind of aggregate the data so that folks like CDC or funders or others, National Cancer Institute, like can actually you know, hear it. And so that's kind of still my role. So even though I have everything else, I'm still the PI for the Pacific Regional Registry. Um, wow. You know, so there's still a lot of that. And yeah, so I'm just, you know. Just all over the place. <laughs> busy. I'm not very good at this work-life balance. <laughs> oh. um, so I guess in general, does advocacy kind of play a big role like in family medicine in general? Like, would you say most um, family med docs are really passionate about advocacy? Yeah, I think so. The, you know, family medicine, OB, probably are the two, actually pediatrics. So mm -hmm. uh, very, very strong advocacy voices kind of built into the curriculum. Um, and um, and here in Hawaii, actually pretty, pretty active, you know. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the patients that we see in primary care um, may not have voices, mm -hmm. right? Uh, maybe they don't feel comfortable. Maybe their English is not the primary language. Um, you know, navigating the world of public policy is incredibly complex, not to mention the time to go mm -hmm. and visit, you know, the individual legislators on key committees and just even understanding how a bill is made and all of that stuff is it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for us who care for uh, individuals, especially if they're, um, you know, in a group that is does have major social or uh, health challenges, you know, disparities, inequities, etc., we really have to be that voice for them. Now, when you do advocacy, of course, it's always good to hear from the people themselves, right. um, and so that's why it's really important. Right? But but many times the legislators, so they're great. They wanna they wanna hear the stories, and that's what that's why they're elected, right? To hear the voice of their constituents. But they um, often, especially if they're gonna try to make new policy, will need the advice of of others, you know, who may be a little bit more expert in some of these, you know, these other. Um, the, the, whatever the content of the bill is. So, yeah, so advocacy is pretty pretty important to what we do. Yeah, so I, um, I guess with a career in family medicine, it's you're like a great example of how it's still possible to kind of get your hands and your influence in a lot of different spheres. Um, so do you think this type of involvement is only possible with uh, family medicine and maybe primary care, or do you see this balance and melding of a lot of different influences in other specialties? Oh yeah, for sure, in many other specialties, you, you know. Um, and again, it's really, I think it's, it's really about figuring out what's most important to you mm -hmm. besides being a great physician, right? So obviously, if you, you don't want to be a great physician, you shouldn't be a medical school. Right? So that's kind of a given. But what else, right? What else is important to you? Why? And really, it's kind of, why did I come into medical school? Like, mm -hmm. why am I putting myself through neuroanatomy? <laughs> right? It's like those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, and you, you just, you know, when times get tough, you look back at your personal statement and say, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Even though I'm tired. I'm like, oh, nucleus uh, what did I you know and, and you remind yourself and then you and then you kind of pick your specialty and pick your residency program to align with that mm -hmm. but yeah but the 
any every specialty is needed for for advocacy. Again, it depends on what your what issues you're advocating for. Right, too. right, right. Oh, that makes sense. Um, okay, so I guess last question, just to wrap things up, um, if you had to share one piece of advice uh, with a medical student interested in family medicine, public health, academic in- administration, or maybe all of the above, like yourself, um, what would you say? Ah, that's hard. Um, I would say you need to follow your heart and enjoy what you do, right? And so that means that taking taking a step back every now and then and just really examining, is this, you know, is this really, and, and also recognize that paths change and that's totally okay, right? Um, but you have to be happy in what you do and so that involves some good soul searching, um, you know, and, and, you know, kind of balancing that um, I'm putting in all of this work and all of this time and yeah, there's gonna be times it's really hard, but what is gonna give me joy, you know, and then, continue that way. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming to share your story with us today. Um, I think one huge thing that I've learned from our conversation is just like how many ways uh, we can make an impact in medicine. You know, you have the direct patient care, um, but you know, you also have advocating and being a voice for your patients, um, as well as training the next generation of physicians. And it's just uh, so inspiring to see how all of this is possible with a career in medicine. Um, So yeah, thank you just so much for sharing your journey today and really being an amazing example of the platform that we have as doctors. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Okay, that's all we have for you today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Doc's Talk Story. Um, and we hope you were able to gain something from our conversation. Also, I just want to take the time to thank everyone who's bought stickers so far. It really helps us to keep our podcast running, so we really appreciate your support. Join us next time on Doc's Talk Story as we continue to journey through the stories of different specialists. And don't forget to head on over to our website to give us your feedback and input on who you'd like to hear from next.